Uh, this morning, we find ourselves in a story of betrayal found in John chapter 18. If I were to ask around some of the most popular movies of betrayal, you'll find movies like um, The Count of Monte Cristo, the 2002 version, Jim Cadvizel uh, stars as a man who was betrayed by his best friend and was imprisoned for a crime he never committed. Once he breaks out, he finds hidden treasure and uses the fortune to create a new identity in the Count of Monte Cristo, Cristo, not Crisco, and sets out for revenge against his old friend. Um, then you have one of Disney's greatest movies, in my humble but accurate opinion, The Lion King. King Mufasa is betrayed and murdered by his own brother, Scar. Sorry if this is a spoiler alert. Some, it's a very old movie. You should have seen this. You had plenty of time. Scar then makes young Simba believe he is the one responsible for the death of his father and takes over the kingdom when Simba runs away from home. And then another Disney movie with arguably the greatest soundtrack, the pretentious Hans pretends to be in love with Princess Anna, but Anna finds out that Hans really just wants the throne and doesn't truly love her. We're talking about Frozen. Um, this morning's passage is a different type of betrayal. Usually the one being betrayed has no idea what they're walking into. Anna had no idea that Hans was just a big jerk face. But in this passage, we see Jesus being in complete control of every single detail. He does not walk into the enemy's trap. The enemy walks into his. So let's read from chapter 18 this morning, focusing on just the first 11 verses. John 18, verse 1, says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to, said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into a sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that we would be um, in awe of who you are. That, that you are patient, you are kind. That you are in complete control. That you know every single one of us. You know what stirs our hearts, our affections. So we come to you this morning asking that you'd give us 
ears to hear from you, eyes to see you at work in our lives. Lord, help me to rightly divide your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look to this story filled with drama, betrayal, vengeance, we must not forget the backdrop on which this story exists. The narrative of the last several chapters um, has taken place in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus has gathered his disciples back in chapter 13 to celebrate the Passover meal. This is when Jesus told Judas to go and do what he had planned to do. So Judas leaves, goes out. Verse 1 says that Jesus and his disciples had gone out across the brook of Kidron where there was a garden. Um, Some of your versions may not say brook, it may say wadi. A wadi was a channel or ravine that was dry except during the rainy season. If you've ever been to Israel, you you have seen these brooks or wadis. They're they're all around. Um, This specific stream ran just below the southeastern wall of Jerusalem. We know this because in other Gospels it says that he prayed at the um, Garden of Gethsemane. So he's there, southeastern side of the wall of Jerusalem. And this brook was unique because um, there was a drain that ran from the temple altar down to the stream to drain away the blood from the sacrifices. So remember, Jesus, his disciples, and most likely over a million other Jews were gathering together at this time for the Passover meal. So it's, it's been estimated at Passover during this time, there'd be over 200,000 lambs that were slain. So when Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron, it would have been red from the blood of the Passover sacrifices. So that's kind of the, the background we see here. Um, there's a, some imagery going on here. And don't miss the contrast here. We see Jesus with his band of disciples... And now we see the former disciple, Judas, has gone out and got himself this new band. Now, if you like catchy sermon titles, you could title this sermon, The Battle of the Bands. That's what we have going on here. This is the final earthly meeting of Judas and Jesus. And it kind of has this feel of like classic, you know, clash between good versus evil. So Judas's band was just a bit bigger than the band of men that Jesus had. We know this because in verse 3, Judas gathers a band of soldiers. And the Greek word here for band of soldiers is spira. Spira um, was referring to like a, a Roman you know, company, military. It could be anywhere from 200 to 600 men. Some scholars believe that the band of soldiers could have been more on the 600 to 1,000 size because of the amount of people in Jerusalem during Passover. So you remember, if there's a million Jews in Gathering in Jerusalem for Passover, Rome does not want a riot to break out. So they would send extra soldiers to monitor the crowds. It'd be much like how maybe in New Orleans you'd increase police during Mardi Gras or Times Square might increase police um, for New Year's Eve. So this is the background, the, the story of betrayal. And I want you to see three truths about um, Jesus That this arrest make known to us. So the first truth we see is that Jesus is sovereign. To be sovereign means you possess supreme power or authority. It means to be in complete control. How many of you like to be in control? Yeah, we've got some control freaks in the room. It's okay. Just confess it. 
Jesus' sovereignty, it's not just found here in this passage, but it's found all throughout Scripture. And one of the clearest examples we see of this is in creation. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says this, For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This seems like a whole lot of sovereignty here. I mean, all things were created through him. That's a lot of things, right? Some visible, some invisible, things like gravity, the wind. You know, I cannot see those things, but I do see the evidence of their existence. These things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this is probably a good place to remind you that neither the Democrats nor the Republicans hold all things together, okay? Jesus is before them all. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent means that he's surpassing all others. So this is who we're talking about here. In our John 18 passage, we clearly see that Jesus is sovereign. Things like in verse 4, he says that he would know that all would happen and yet still chose to go to where Judas knew he would be. He knew all that would happen. He went where he knew Judas would find him. Jesus did not run from being betrayed. For our sakes, he embraced it. He waited for it, and even, you could argue, pursued it. He was betrayed so that you could be loved and accepted. If you've ever been betrayed by people, remember that he was betrayed for you, that you might be accepted by him. Notice how Jesus doesn't choose this garden as a place to hide, but rather as a place to be found. He chose a spot well known that Judas would know that he would be there because his time has finally come to lay down his life. And it may look like Jesus is being hunted, but he's the one laying the ambush. In verse 4, he hands himself over. In verse 6, the large army falls down before Jesus. In verse 7, Jesus refuses to escape. In verse 8, he controls who the soldiers let go. He has the audacity to tell the Roman soldiers not to arrest his disciples. And they listened. He was able to fulfill his promise in verse 9. Throughout this entire encounter, he leads the conversation. Did you notice that? In verse 4, they all come and he's, he goes out. He goes out to them and says, whom do you seek? And then again in verse 7, he asks them, whom do you seek? This is not the normal procedure for these Roman soldiers. These are men who were trained to take orders only from their superiors. Yet here we see them obeying the instructions of Jesus of Nazareth. Then in verse 11, Jesus commands Peter, put your sword away. The entire scene is just one big example in which Jesus Jesus shows that he is in absolute control. His arrest is not an accident. It was a part of his plan. He could have easily escaped. I mean, think about the size of army that was coming their way. It's dark. It's nighttime. Jesus and his disciples would have surely 
seen the lanterns, all the light coming, even heard them coming from far away. And they could have just took off running. They could have hid. But what does he do? He runs out to meet them. Who does that? The numbers may have been in favor of the Roman soldiers, but the one being arrested is clearly seen as the one in charge. The king was not being captured. He was willingly giving himself over to his enemies. So we clearly see Jesus being in control. He's sovereign. Next, I want us to see the deity of Jesus. We know from the book of Isaiah that Jesus did not look like what people thought a Messiah should look like. This always shocks people when they first hear this. So we, you know, we picture Jesus looking, you know, this, this Hollywood type, you know, figure. Isaiah 53, verse 3, the, the second part of that verse says that he had no form or majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So I, I find tremendous comfort in this. That Jesus could have looked like me. In verses 5 and 7, he is called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a town that people didn't take very seriously. The Jews looked down upon those who came from Nazareth. Even one of his very own disciples, when first hearing of the hometown of Jesus, asked the question, can anything good come from Nazareth? Back in chapter 7, the religious leaders had already shown their disbelief as to the Messiah coming from Galilee. Basically, Jesus doesn't look the part of what they think God should look like. Some might even say he's from the wrong side of the tracks. He's not from the right social class. He didn't have the proper training and education. Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? In verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Whom do you seek? We're looking for Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, you know, that little nobody. He replies, I am he. Now, this is one of those times that the Greek language does not translate very well into English. The he in Greek is implied. He literally says in Greek, ego and me, which translates very literally, I am. There have been a few times in John's gospel where Jesus will say, I am, and the people get really upset, and on a few occasions they even try to kill him. It's obvious that this audience, when they hear Jesus say, I am, they, they, they hear him referring to Jesus as being, you know, using this name of God, I am, found in Exodus chapter 3. When God first made himself known by name, it was through a burning bush. God told Moses to return to Egypt, to tell Pharaoh that, um, that I'm saying, let my people go. Moses asked the burning bush, which is kind of an interesting conversation to have. That, you know, that's great and all, but, but who do I tell Pharaoh is sending me? God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. Tell him I am who I am. John 18, these soldiers, you know, they, they, they say we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He replies, I am. And what is the response? They, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, why does this make any sense? 
other than to think they hear him saying this I am. And there's others around there who are Jewish who would know what he's saying there. Um, I mean, why else would, whether it's 20 soldiers, 200 soldiers, possibly even more, why would they fall down? There's these chief priests, Pharisees included in this, in this crew. I believe they all fall down because they believe that they're in the presence of deity. They believe that Jesus is God. I mean, where else do we see this kind of behavior in Scripture? Where else do we see people falling down prostrate? When the Bible, anytime when someone experiences this encounter with, with deity, with, with, with God, they, when they feel they're in the presence of divine, they fall on their face. Sometimes you'll see this with angels. An angel appears. People will fall down. The angel says, no, 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 don't, don't fall down and worship me. I'm just an angel. And so here, I don't know why else they would have fallen down to the ground unless they had some sense of Jesus being deity. This also shows that Jesus was not being arrested out of weakness. Now, I'm not saying that they're worshiping him. They're not confessing him as Savior. I don't think that's what they're doing by bowing down. But I do think in some way this is a working of the Holy Spirit here to where the Holy Spirit's allowing them to see Jesus for who he truly was. I think this is a picture of what will one day take place at the final judgment. Because this is not the last time this scene will happen. There's coming a day when these same soldiers, same officers, same chief priests, and even Judas will stand before Jesus again. Philippians chapter 2 gives us this account. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He's preeminent. He's above all. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in a sense, this is what's happening in John chapter 18. It's a snapshot of this divine judgment. We will all bow our knee one day. You're either going to do it now or later. And it's only going to matter if you do it now for your eternity. So while they're still prostrate on the ground, Jesus asks again, whom do you seek? You know, I wonder if the disciples are like, all right, now's our chance. Let's run. But Jesus is saying, who, now, who again, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He replies, I've already told you that I am. At this point, when you read the other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the guards grab a hold of Jesus, and Peter decides that he is going to, to play God. He's going to become sovereign. He's going to take control. Peter removes the sword, cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant. So Peter was either incredibly accurate with the sword and just wanted to send a, you know, just a little message or he missed the servant's head, or the servant ducked out of the way. That's kind of our options here. Either way, Jesus was not thrilled with Peter's actions. Peter did not pass the test. This was not the response that Jesus was hoping would come from Peter. 
But you have to love Peter's boldness. I mean, it's 11 untrained men against a multitude of trained soldiers. And yet I believe Peter knew that Jesus could have taken them if he really wanted to. So I think that's why Peter just was going to start this big um, you know, attack against these Roman soldiers. In fact, Jesus knew that, that he could have taken the soldiers if, if he had chosen to. In Matthew's account, we don't see this in John's gospel, but in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000. So here Jesus says, Peter, I could easily ask my father. My father could send me 72,000 angels to protect me. I don't need your sword. So this isn't the battle that Jesus wants to fight. Rather than taking up the sword, Jesus chooses to take up the cross. Instead of fighting these men, Jesus reaches out and miraculously heals the man's ear. This is insane. Some think Jesus did this in order to save Peter's life. This would have been the reason, you know, this would have been reason enough to crucify Peter, that he just attacked the high priest's servant's ear. Maybe this head, I don't know. Yet others argue that Jesus did this to show that he's in full of compassion and grace and mercy and kindness. I'm not sure why both can't be true. This would have definitely been the end of Peter. But... Jesus says, let these men go, just take me. And they listened to him, even though Peter just attacked the high priest's servant. What I find a bit out of character of John's gospel is John identifies this man. This is so strange in John's writing. John's pattern has typically been there was a man, there was a woman. John's gospel is known for his unnamed individuals. But here John makes this parenthetical statement, the servant's name was Malchus. The other gospels don't do this. So here it's kind of flipped. The other gospels are better at naming all these other characters. John is not. But here John mentions that his name was Malchus. Why would John do this? Why does John give us his name when he normally does not identify the individual? Unfortunately, we don't really have a clear answer. Maybe John personally knew this man. He did know the high priest, so maybe he would know the servant of the high priest. Maybe Malchus went on to become a believer. We don't know. I mean, you want to talk about having an encounter with God. What a crazy day for for Malchus. We have some guys here um, in our congregation. um, They've served in the military. We have some guys who have served or are still serving as law enforcement you know this, that the goal of a police officer is to serve and protect and to come home to your family, right? It's what you want. We don't know if Malchus was married, but imagine him coming home and his wife asking him about his day. You will never believe what happened to me today. I got my ear cut off. What? Yeah, this dude tried to cut my head off. I dodged. You probably made the story a little bit better. Cut off my ear. Oh, my goodness. Are you Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. There's another man there. His name was Jesus. He's from Nazareth. You know, nothing good comes from Nazareth. He reached out and put his hand on my ear and miraculously healed it. 
And this is all we know about the story of Malchus. But it's a reminder that Jesus didn't come to bring the sword, but to bring peace between God and man. The scene with Peter and Malchus reminds us that Jesus does not need us. See, as a new Christian, I struggled with this. I thought that Jesus saved me because he needed my help to save the world. I quickly realized that Jesus does not need me. He wants me. He loves me. But he does not need me. And just like Peter, I think we too are often well-meaning. I mean, how often do you function as if everything depends on you and your actions? I'm guilty. It's important for us to remember that Jesus does not need our efforts, but he desires our obedience. In Acts 17, Paul informs the men of Athens of this truth. Acts 17, verse 24, says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you ever feel like God needs you? I think he wants us, he loves us, he desires a relationship with us, but God does not need us. He is God. Peter did not fully understand that this day would be saved through the cup, not the sword. Which brings us to our final truth about Jesus from John 18. So we've seen his sovereignty, seen that he's deity. John 18 shows us that there's this need for substitutionary atonement. Um, and I think when we hear that phrase, we, we kind of get substitution. We, we, we hear that word in so many different places. Like sports, we hear the word substitution. We hear the word used in food, whether we substitute one side for another side, or maybe you're partial to a certain sugar substitute, and some of you are even substitute teachers. But the word atoning, it's not, it's not as common. We don't use it very often. To atone simply means to make amends, to resolve or repair a relationship that was broken. John shapes this entire narrative in order to show that the death of Jesus is for the purpose of drinking the cup of his father's wrath on behalf of the people. This is what we mean by substitutionary atonement. And we see this. This is a truth about Jesus. He is that substitutionary atonement for us. Jesus is atoning, resolving, repairing the damaged relationship between man and God. See, we rebelled. We've walked away from God. Each, every single one of us, we've sinned against a holy, righteous God. And so we deserve death. But Jesus, verse 11 says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup is a phrase used all throughout the Old Testament, and it describes uh, God's wrath. Passages like Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25 are clear examples of this. You can jot those down, read those later. The Old Testament prophesied that there would be this one who would come and he would be this substitutionary atonement for us. Isaiah um, chapter 53 
starting in verse 4. Listen to this language. See where you can identify this substitution, atonement, where Jesus is going to be our substitute for our failure. He's going to live this righteous life. Listen to this, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Are you catching this language? That it should have been us, but he, he's taken our place. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he, not, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Okay, this was the plan. This is not an accident. Jesus didn't get arrested that night. He gave himself over. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So he's making them righteous. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's at the cross where Jesus is suffering the death penalty in the place of others. This is what this is, Isaiah 53 is pointing us to. It's at the cross where Jesus becomes our substitute. He takes our place. He becomes the atonement for our sin. Because of how you and I have rebelled and disobeyed God, then we all deserve to drink the cup of wrath. The wrath that you and I deserve is now poured out onto Jesus while he is on the cross. Now, the other three Gospels, they, they, they paint a better picture of this agony that Jesus goes through um, moments right before the arrest. Jesus knew that he was about to be arrested, going to be beaten, mocked, shamed, nailed to a tree. This was the pain, that, the physical pain that he knew that he was going to, to endure. But the intensity of Christ's agony shows that he knew exactly what was involved. Luke's gospel describes his agony was so intense that Jesus began to sweat great drops of blood. So it was not the physical pain uh, of being, you know, beaten, mocked, emotional pain, um, nailed to a cross. It was not that that caused him this dread. 
It was not the shame. It was not the fact that his disciples would desert him. It was the fact that he was going to pay the penalty for our sin. That, that in that moment on the cross, that his father would turn from him. This is what theologians mean by substitutionary atonement. Christ did something for us that no man could have ever done. Scripture calls Jesus the new and better Adam. The first Adam ruined it all. This new and better Adam restored it all. And notice how the setting of John 18 is in a garden. There's a lot of similarities between this garden and the first garden, the Garden of Eden. The first Adam began life in a garden. Christ, the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In the first garden, Adam faced Satan, who betrayed God. In this garden, Jesus faces Judas, who had betrayed the God-man. In the first garden, Adam sinned. In this garden, Jesus overcame sin. In the first garden, Adam fell. In this garden, Jesus conquered. In the first garden, Adam hid himself. In this garden, Jesus boldly presents himself. Jesus is, in fact, the true and better Adam. And just as Jesus lays down his life, he now calls us to lay down our life. Physically, maybe, I don't know. There's a chance that we could die for our faith. But I think the more pressing laying down that Jesus calls us to is a spiritual one. Jesus is calling you to surrender, to lay down your sword. Quit fighting against him. To let him have complete control over your life. So this morning, will you surrender your life to a good, wise, sovereign king? One who knows it all. One who cares for you. Will you let him have control over your time, talents, and treasures? Let's pray as the band comes back to lead us. Father, this morning, I, I pray that we would, because of who you are, that you are sovereign, that you are fully God, that, that you are this substitutionary atonement on our behalf. Lord, I pray that because of those truths that we would lay down our life for you. That we would surrender control. Maybe we struggle like Peter where we think we know what's best. We think we know what you actually need to further your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you'd remind us from this passage today that you, you don't need us. That you've got it all figured out. You've got a plan for our lives. And that our plan is best when we just trust you with it. So I pray that you would uh, convict us of sin. Maybe someone in here, maybe they're on the wrong side. Maybe they're in the other band. Maybe they've come, um, maybe like a guy like Malchus, maybe curious about who you are. Lord, I pray that you'd reach out and that you would miraculously heal them today. I'm not speaking physically, but I'm speaking spiritually that they would receive a healing today. Maybe they've never confessed that you're the Christ. Maybe they've never bowed their knee like Malchus did that night. Lord, I pray that they would bow today.
I pray that they would surrender everything to you, knowing that you are truly God, that they need you to atone for their sins, and so they reach out and receive a healing from you. Lord, I pray that you would empower us this week to be your witnesses, to be faithful disciples. Lord, help us to believe these truths about you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.